0: Part 2, Chapter 21 of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This Slippervox recording is in the public domain, recording by Marianne. The breeze had died down. Dark clouds hung low over the battlefield, mingling on the horizon with the smoke of gunpowder. It had grown dark, and therefore with all the more clearness the blaze of the two burning villages stood out against the sky. The cannonade had slackened, but still the rattle of musketry at the rear, and at the right was heard with ever-increasing frequency and distinctness. As soon as Tushin and his field-pieces, jolting and constantly meeting wounded men, got out of range and descended into the ravine, he was met by the commander and his aides, among whom were both the staff officer and Zerkov, who had been twice sent but had not once succeeded in reaching Tushin's battery. All of them gave him confused orders and counter-orders, as to how and where to go, and overwhelmed him with reproaches and criticisms. Tushin made no arrangements, but rode toward the rear on his artillery jade, not saying a word for fear he should burst into tears, which, without his knowing why, were ready to gush from his eyes. Although the order was to abandon the wounded, many dragged themselves after the troops, and begged for a ride on the gun-carriages. That very same gallant infantry officer, who, before the beginning of the engagement, had darted so energetically from Tushin's hut, was stretched out on the carriage of the Matveyevna, with a bullet in his belly. At the foot of the hill, a pale younger of hussars, holding one arm in his hand, came to Tushin and asked for a seat. "'Captain, for God's sake, my arm is crushed,' said he, timidly. "'For God's sake, I can't walk any longer.' for god's sake it was evident that this younger had more than once repeated this request and had been everywhere refused he asked in an irresolute and piteous voice give me a place for god's sake climb on climb on said tushin spread out a cloak uncle he added turning to his favorite gunner but where's the wounded officer we took him off he died replied some climb on sit there sit down my dear fellow sit there Spread out the cloak, Antonov. The younger was Rostov. He held his left arm in his right hand. His face was pale, and his teeth chattered with fever. He was assisted to climb on the Matveyevna to the very same spot from which they had removed the dead officer. There was blood on the cloak which Antonov spread out, and it stained Rostov's riding trousers and hands. What are you wounded, my dear? Asked Tushin, approaching the gun on which Rostov was riding. "'No, only a bruise. But where did that blood come from? On the gun-cheek,' asked the other. "'That's the officers, your honor,' replied a gunner, wiping away the blood with the sleeve of his capote, as though he were apologizing for the stain on the gun. By main force, and with the help of the infantry, the guns were dragged up the slope, and when they reached the village of Guntherstof they halted. By this time it was quite dark, so that it was impossible at ten paces to distinguish the uniforms of the soldiers. The musketry fire was beginning to slacken. Suddenly shouts and the rattle of shots were heard again nearby at the right. The darkness was lighted up by the flashes of the guns. This was the last attack of the French, and the soldiers replied to it as they entrenched themselves in the houses of the village. Once more all hands rushed out from the village, but Tushin's field-pieces were hopelessly fast and the gunners and Tushin and the Yunker, silently exchanging glances, awaited their fate. Then the firing began to die away once more, and out from a side street came a party of soldiers, engaged in lively conversation. "'Safe and sound, Petrov asked one. "'We gave it them hot and heavy, brother. They won't meddle with us again,' returned the other. "'Can't see a thing. How was it? Warmed em up a little, eh?' can't see a thing. It's so dark, fellows. Anything to drink?' The French had been driven back for the last time, and once more, through the impenetrable darkness, Tushin's field-pieces moved forward, surrounded by the rumbling infantry as by a frame. Something seemed to be flowing on through the darkness like an invisible, gloomy river, ever pushing forward in one direction, with a murmur of voices and the clinking of bayonets and the rumble of wheels." and above the general turmoil, clear and distinguishable above all other sounds, arose the groans and cries of the wounded in the blackness of the night. Their groans seemed to coincide with the pitchy blackness which surrounded the army. Their groans, and this darkness of the night, seemed to be one and the same thing. After a while, a wave of excitement ran through this onward struggling mass, some one had come from headquarters on a white horse, and shouted something as he rode along by. "'What's that he says? Where now? Is it to halt? Did he express any gratitude?' Such were the eager questions heard on all sides, and then the whole moving mass, as it moved forward, recoiled on itself. Evidently the van had halted, and the report spread that orders were to Bouvillac there, all hands settled down where they were in the middle of the muddy road. Fires were lighted, and voices began to grow animated. Captain Tushin, having made his arrangements for his company, sent one of his men to find the temporary hospital, or at least a surgeon for the Yunker, and sat down in front of the fire which his soldiers had built by the roadside. Rostov also dragged himself up to the fire. The fever, caused by his pain, the cold and the dampness shook his whole frame. An irresistible inclination to drowsiness overcame him, but still he could not sleep, owing to the tormenting pain which he felt in his arm. It ached, and he found no position that relieved it. Sometimes he closed his eyes, then, again, he gazed into the fire, which seemed to him angrily red. Then again at the round-shouldered, slender figure of Tushin, sitting Turkish fashion near him. Tushin's large, intelligent, kindly eyes were fastened upon him with sympathy and compassion. He saw that Tushin with all his soul desired, and yet was totally unable, to help him. On all sides were heard the steps and voices of the infantry passing by, coming up and settling down around them. The sounds of voices, of steps, and trampling of horses, stamping their hoofs in the mud, the echo of axes far and near, all mingled in one pulsating uproar. Now, it was no longer like a viewless river rolling onward through the darkness, but rather like a gloomy sea, roaring and breaking after a storm. Rostov, half-dazed, looked and listened to what was going on around him, and before him. A foot-soldier came up to the Bouviac fire, squatted down on his heels, rubbed his hands over the fire, and turned his face around. "'Any harm, your honor?' he asked, turning to Tushin with an inquiring expression. "'Here. I lost my company, your honor. I don't know where it is. Hard luck.' At the same time with the soldier, an infantry officer with a bandaged cheek came to the fire, and begged Tushin to order his field-pieces to be moved a trifle, so as to allow the baggage-train to pass. The company commander was followed by two soldiers. They were quarrelling desperately, reviling each other, and almost fighting over a boot. "'You lie! You didn't pick it up! Oh, you villain!' one of them was crying in a hoarse voice. Then came a lean, pale, soldier, with his neck done up in blood-stained bandages, and, in an irascible voice, asked the artillerymen for a drink of water. "'What? Must I die like a dog?' he grumbled. Tushin ordered the men to give him a drink. Then came a jolly soldier— asking for some fire for the infantry. A little fire from a red-hot man for the infantry. Good luck to you, fellow countrymen. Thank you for the fire. We'll return it with interest, said he, as he disappeared into the darkness with a flaming brand. After this, soldier came four, carrying something heavy wrapped up in a cloak, and went past the fire. One of them stumbled. Oh, bah, the devils! They have been spilling firewood, cried one of them. "'He's dead. What's the use of lugging him?' exclaimed another. "'Well, I tell you.' And they vanished in the darkness with their burden. "'Say, does it hurt?' asked Tushin, in a whisper. "'Yes, it hurts. Your Honor, the General wants you. He's at the cottage yonder,' said one of the gunners, coming up to Tushin. "'In a moment, my boy.' Tushin got up, and buttoning his cloak and straightening himself— he left the fireside. In a cottage which had been made ready for him, not far from the artillerous fire, Prince Bagration was still sitting at the dinner-table, talking with a number of high officers, who had called in for consultation. There was the little, old man, with half-closed eyes, piteously gnawing a mutton-bone, and the general of twenty-two years' blameless service, his face flushed from his vodka and his dinner. And the staff-officer with the birthday ring, and Zerkov, uneasily looking at the others, and Prince Andrei with compressed lips and feverishly shining eyes. In the corner of the cottage leaned the standard taken from the French, and the auditor, with his innocent face, was fingering the stuff of which the standard was made, shaking his head doubtfully, perhaps because he was really interested in the standard, and perhaps, because being hungry, It was hard to see the dinner-table at which no place had been set for him in the next cottage was a captured colonel of dragoons with our officers crowding around him with curiosity in their eyes prince bagration thanked the officers of the various divisions and made inquiries about the details of the engagement and the losses the regimental commander who had commanded the review at brunau explained to the prince that as soon as the action began He had withdrawn from the woods collected the men engaged in gathering firewood and sending them back had charged with two battalions and simply carried the french at the point of the bayonet when i saw that the first battalion was giving way your illustriousness i stood on the road and said to myself i will let them get by first and then order a running fire and that was the way i did it the regimental commander had been so anxious to do this and so sorry that he had not been successful in doing it that it now seemed to him that he actually had done so indeed may it not have been so how is it possible to decide in the general confusion what had happened and what had not happened by the way i ought to observe your illustriousness he went on to say remembering dolokhov's conversation with kutuzov and his last meeting with the young man that the cashiered private dolokhov took a french officer prisoner under my very eyes and distinguished himself notably. It was there I saw the charge of the Pavlograd hussars, your illustriousness remarked Zerkov, looking around uneasily, for he had not that day seen a single hussar, and had only heard about them from the infantry officer. They broke two squares, your lustrousness. A few, hearing Zerkov's words, smiled, because a joke was always expected from him. But, perceiving that what he said also redounded to the glory of our arms, and of the day's doings, they grew serious again, though they knew very well that what Zerkov said was a lie without even a semblance of foundation. Prince Bagration turned to the elderly colonel. I thank you all, gentlemen. All parties have worked like heroes, infantry, cavalry, artillery. But how was it two field pieces were abandoned in the center? he demanded looking round for some one prince bagration made no inquiries for the cannon of the left wing he knew by this time that all the cannon there had been abandoned at the very beginning of the action i believe i asked you about them he said turning to the staff officer of the day one was dismounted replied the staff officer but the other as to that i myself cannot understand i was there all the time and gave orders for it to be retired and immediately i was called away "'It was hot there, to be sure,' he added modestly. Some one remarked that Captain Tushin was right here in the village, and that he had already been sent for. "'Ah! But you were there, were you not?' asked Prince Bagration of Prince André. "'Certainly. We almost met there,' said the staff-officer, giving Prince André an affable smile. "'I did not have the pleasure of seeing you,' declared Prince André, coolly and curtly. All were silent.' Tushin now appeared on the threshold, modestly making his way behind the backs of the generals. Passing around the generals, in the narrow room, and confused, as always, in the presence of his superiors, Tushin did not see the flagstaff and stumbled over it. Several laughed. "'How is it the guns were abandoned?' asked Bagration, frowning, but not so much at the captain as at those who were rude enough to laugh, among whom Zerkov's voice was distinguished above the rest. "'Tushin,' now for the first time, at the sight of the stern commander, realized with horror his crime and disgrace at having lost two guns while he himself was left alive. He had been so agitated that, till this moment, he had not had time to think of this incident. The laughter of the officers still more threw him off his balance. He stood in front of Bagration, with his lower jaw trembling, and could hardly stammer, "'I—I—I—I I, I don't know—' your lustrousness. I had no men, your lustrousness. You might have had them from the forces that covered you. Tushin did not reply that there were no forces covering him, though this would have been the unvarnished truth. He was afraid he might compromise some of his superior officers, and so in silence, with staring eyes, he gazed into Bagration's face as a schoolboy looks in confusion into his master's. A rather long silence ensued, Prince Bagration, evidently not wishing to be too severe, knew not what to say. The others did not venture to interfere in the conversation. Prince Andrei looked askance at Tushin, and his fingers twitched nervously. "'Your illustriousness,' said Prince Andrei, breaking the silence in his clear voice. "'You were pleased to send me to Captain Tushin's battery. I went there and found two-thirds of his men and horses disabled, two of his guns dismounted, and no forces to cover him.' Prince Bagration and Tushin kept their eyes fixed on Bolkonsky, who was speaking under the influence of restrained excitement. And if your lustrousness will permit me to express my opinion, he went on to say, we are indebted more than all for the success of this day to the action of this battery and the heroic steadfastness of Captain Tushin and his company, said Prince Andrei, and without waiting for any reply, he got up and left the table. Prince Bagration looked at Tushin, and evidently not wishing to show any disbelief in Prince Balkonsky's stiff judgment, and at the same time, not feeling himself prepared to acquiesce entirely with it, he inclined his head and told Tushin that he might go. Prince Andrei followed him. "'Thank you, my boy. You have saved me,' said Tushin to him. Prince Andrei looked at Tushin, and without saying anything, turned away from him his heart was heavy and full of melancholy. It was all so strange, so unlike what he had anticipated. "'Who are they? Why do they come here? What do they want? And when will all this end?' Rostov asked himself, as he gazed at the shadows which unceasingly passed before him. The pain in his arm grew worse and worse. Unconquerable drowsiness oppressed him. Red circles danced before his eyes— and the impression of these voices and these faces, and the sense of his loneliness mingled with the sense of his agony. These soldiers, wounded and not wounded, they all did the same thing. They all pressed upon him, crushed him, tore his muscles, and roasted the flesh in his broken arm and shoulder. To rid himself of them, he closed his eyes. He lost himself for one moment, but during that brief interval of forgetfulness he saw in his dream a countless collection of objects he saw his mother with her large white hand he saw Sonya's thin shoulders natasha's eyes and smiling lips and Denisov with his queer voice and long moustache and telyanin and his whole encounter with telyanin and Bogdanovich. all this story was one and the same thing with what this soldier with the shrill voice said and all this story, and this soldier so cruelly, so constantly crushed, twitched, and pulled his arm in one direction. He struggled to escape from them, but they would not for a single second let go of his shoulder, or in the least relax their hold. It would not have hurt, it would have been all right, if they would cease pulling him, but it was impossible to get rid of them. He opened his eyes and looked up. A black strip of the night, an arch and wide, Hung over the glowing coals. Across this strip of light flew the powdery snow as it fell. Tushin did not return. The surgeon had not come. He was alone. A little soldier now sat on the other side of the fire, stripped and warming his thin, sallow body. I'm of no use to anyone, thought Rostov. No one helps me or takes pity on me. But if I were only at home, strong, happy, beloved he sighed, and his sigh involuntarily changed into a groan. Aye, does it hurt? asked the little soldier, shaking his shirt over the fire, and without awaiting his answer, quacking like a duck, he added. Good many men knocked to pieces this day. Terrible. Rostov did not heed the soldier. He gazed at the snowflakes fluttering down into the fire, and he recalled what winter would be at home in Russia, his warm, bright home, with his downy furs swift sledges his strong healthy body and the love and care of his family and why did i come here he asked himself on the following day the french did not renew their attack and the remains of bagration's division effected a conjunction with kutuzov's army end of chapter 21 and end of part 2